Through high school and college, I was a fairly serious rock drummer of all things. And what makes that fact a little more fun is the fact that uh, one of my casual friends from high school ended up becoming the drummer for Pearl Jam, a rather small group here in the Northwest you may have heard of. <laughs> Occasionally, if the stresses and strains of dealing with massive volatility in the currency market hits me, I can always pull out my drum set and bang away for an hour or two, and that, that actually relieves stress to some degree. It's not always we get a chance to experience the entrepreneurial journey firsthand. Most people don't. What drives it? What motivates someone to quit their job and the security of a monthly paycheck and venture out in pursuit of mastering a craft? Well, that's what we're talking about in today's episode of Top Traders Unplugged. Welcome back to Top Traders Unplugged, where the best traders in the world come to share their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Let's rejoin the conversation with your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. And um, do you expect that number of, of currencies to change over time or or is this really a, uh, I guess it goes also, I mean, it, obviously you're focusing on a particular sector, i.e. currencies, and there is right. al always this debate be between uh, a fully diversified manager or a focused manager or whatever. But but now that you've decided to be focused within your sector, um, how much further diversification do you think uh, you would benefit from? Or do you actually think that, you know, these number of currencies are actually enough to give me all the diversification I need. Yeah, that is an excellent issue to raise. Uh, I'm of the belief that if I had, you know, if I had 200 currencies to invest in that were investable, I would be thrilled with that. Okay. Not necessarily from a diversification standpoint, although that's certainly part of it. But quite frankly, it's an opportunity standpoint with every extra currency that I have access to. Uh, that creates a situation where, uh, I mean, if to kind of give you a sense of sort of what I kind of visually imagine currencies to be, if you can imagine kind of a horizontal graph where you have like 22 different points and, uh, and there's a midpoint uh, vertically, well, that would be the that would be the fair value. And so then, for each of those twenty two currencies, vertically there would be the actual market price. And so I'm looking at these different ones, and I'm looking for a divergence that's a magnitude move from the midpoint that is the largest possible move. So the more currencies I have available, the more likely it is I'm going to find an extreme outlier that, in my opinion, has the greatest chance of, you know, mean reverting in a way that creates a profit opportunity. So I think at 22 currencies, I feel very comfortable about our level of diversification. In fact, it, it is kind of funny because perception-wise, you're right. People hear currencies and they think of a very focused, uh, sure. in essence, kind of a, a non-diversified approach. But I, I think I'm very genuine in saying I'm very confident that given the fact I'm in 22 different countries that sure. have very different uh, profiles in terms of uh, and correlations with one another in terms of their overall uh, economic moves and hence currency uh, uh, correlations between them, I think I'm much more diversified than virtually any other manager I can think of. Um, but more currencies are always better. And and I would like to be able to get exposure, for instance, to the Indian rupee. That would be, I, I think that's a currency that has some real interesting uh, return profiles. Do you look at charts at all? I mean, charts where, 
you know, prices often, you know, could indicate some uh, level of uh, change in, in, in trend or something like that. Do you pay any attention to that at all? I, I do, but generally as a counter, uh, you know, as, as a, a counter in, contrary indicator. Uh, so at the extremes, I, I will look at charts. I, so the Russian ruble is an interesting chart right now. I mean, if you look at it uh, in currency terms, the the move down has been something that has been virtually, you know, virtually unheard of, essentially. And so, you know, for what it's worth, I, I think this is the most difficult currency to invest in at the moment because it's a very bimodal currency. Uh, there is a chance. I think it is extremely small, but this is kind of the only currency that I can invest in where I think there's a small chance of it basically going to zero. Uh, at the same time, it is so, on paper at least, out of line with its fundamental valuation that should things stabilize slash improve or should Putin's gambit I, – I mean the operative question is, is Putin mad? Is he a genius or is he a mad genius? And, and I think that there's probably – the answer is mostly on the latter and that his – Actions, I think, very much have Russia's long-term strategic economic interest at heart. And I think that he's taking some very bold, calculated gambles in terms of accomplishing his ends. But he is exposing himself to un you know, potentially unexpected results. I mean, I don't think that the EU and the United States is going to get enough backbone to, you know, be able to truly push back. But, you know, it is conceivable that if there's enough of a route in the ruble that there's enough to, and obviously oil is not in the direction of oil is not helping uh, the situation for Putin in the short term, at least right now, um, you could potentially have a very unstable situation. I mean, at some point there could be, I mean, his approval ratings are in excess of 80 percent. But should that change? He is definitely exposing himself to potential domestic political turmoil, uh, definite ongoing economic turmoil. So it's a very fluid, dynamic uh, and difficult situation to be able to have any certainty about what the outcome is going to be. Sure. I mean, from what you're saying, and not that I have any sort of global macro view as such, but but um, I mean, if you think about it, um, what he really needs is to to devalue the ruble. Um, you know, to get as much of the oil revenue in and and pay for all the uh, internal costs that he's running. So, so as you say, maybe and 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 maybe that is how I understood your answer that that maybe he is a genius and and that's exactly what he's doing, but at a, you know, playing at a high risk. Right, because the the problem and and this is kind of my, I mean, it's the fat tail risk problem, right? I mean, is that is that being able to, once the genie is out of the bottle, trying to get the genie back in the bottle, uh, it can be a lot more difficult than anticipated. So I think that there is definitely something to be gained in, in the short term by having the ruble you know, move in the direction that it's, it's moving for sure. But in the long run, I think that he realizes that having he's basically right now debasing purchasing power in Russia. Sure. So while public sentiment is all nationalistic and they're whipped up into a fervor about everything in eastern Ukraine, you know, his ratings are great. But if the ruble stays at these levels, then uh, people on you know the streets of Moscow and all around Russia are going to literally be a lot poorer as a result of it. And, and I don't know how well that's going to play out for him if that doesn't stabilize and eventually rebound. Sure. 
But just going to my question about the charts, and I just want to try. Oh, so, I'm so sorry. No, 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 don't, don't, don't worry about it. This is actually kind of a a, a question I thought of while you were talking because uh, you're, ex you're you're explaining that the ruble being you know an issue and a difficult uh, currency to trade now and. If I'm understanding you correctly so far, this would be an instance where you would be probably buying more as as cheaper it becomes because you know uh, it you are contrarian. But here's the thing: if you were looking at charts, you would see that the charts wouldn't support that uh, view right now. But on the other hand, when your view starts paying off, the charts would support it. So mm -hmm. why not? Use charts to confirm the timing of your thesis. Yep, that's that's a super question to ask. And in fact, one of the first things that happened when when Evan came on board to the fund is I, I told him I said, "Look, I'm skeptically agnostic with regards to being a chartist slash technician. I want you to 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 explore this and see if I'm missing something." And and I very well could be. Um, And it's interesting. We actually looked at uh, a real trade that that I had done, which was ended up being the most profitable trade that I'd ever executed. And looked to, see, but before it was the most profitable trade as an individual, I had an 85% drawdown on that trade. Yeah. And so the question is, could there have been a better way of kind of handling that? And what I what we looked at at least is that using kind of at least the traditional sort of technical analysis that we had used, there was actually a false a false reversal that had occurred, which was kind of a trap, if you will, that that if we had been out of the market and then tried to get back in, we would have actually gotten in at a, at a time where it dropped even further. And by dollar cost averaging gently in, we were able, I'm sorry, I was able to, I should not say we, sure, so this sure. was a, a trade on my own. Yeah. And by the way, I should issue this extremely clear uh, kind of disclaimer or proviso that, um, you know, trading my own account, I, I was leveraged like three to four times more than what the hedge fund is. So that's sure. hence the extremes sure. of the moves. So uh, in looking at it, though, it ended up that despite losing 85%, like the trade ended up like hundreds and hundreds of percent returns given the leverage that was used and the like. So we tried tried to back test a, a, a technical kind of strategy and the confirmation would have been a false confirmation and it would have actually led to further losses. So it, it gets me further along the belief personally. And again, I, I, because I don't pretend to be a master chartist slash technician, it very well could be that if I was able to attract somebody in the top 5% of, of being a technician or a chartist, they could have told me up front that this this is a false break don't go it's it's you know it's 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 a sucker move or whatever but based on sort of our general understanding of the strategy it seemed to confirm my general view that in the short term trying to predict markets is like a 60% probability kind of endeavor whereas if i can be confident in the 90% long term outcome even if i have to dollar cost average in in some ways that's good news right i mean i remember very distinctly reading charles ellis's winning the losing game And uh, you know, in it, he basically says that that one of the things that most investors, you know, make a mistake with regards to is this idea of seeing capital losses as this big 
awful tragedy to be avoided at all costs. He says that just like if you walk into a department store and socks are 50% off, you know, you don't go, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. The socks I own are like worth less than what they were the day before. You go in and you buy more socks because sure. it's a good value. And and so uh, I, I have at least believed that, and that is interesting because I, I kind of told you that I sort of repudiated this, this efficient markets theory in terms of uh, looking at asset markets. One of the things I did take away from that, though, at least that school of thought, is indeed this belief that um, trying to take the long view is going to be ultimately the most likely probability of long-term success. And when you see losses, and from my perspective, when I have personal losses or now fund losses, I rigorously re-examine the assumptions. Because if things are going down, I, I tell people that there are three kinds of losses and they all have very different implications. There's the kind of losses where you're taking losses because your analysis is flawed. Yeah. And those are the losses that you need to identify ASAP, remedy, and you know modify positions accordingly. And, and that's what we're constantly trying to make sure that we're we're doing. The second kind of losses are sort of beta losses, right? I mean, you could just be holding a position and volatility is inherent. The third kind of losses, I actually say, again, in this kind of Charles Ellis sort of kind of mindset, uh, is actually good news because it presents a better buying opportunity for the fund. And we use what's, you know, dynamic rebalancing strategy such that as currencies that we think are att are attractively priced appreciate, we generally, you know, at some point when there's enough gains, generally trim those positions and usually use those gains to then fund purchases in currencies that might have moved against us. So what we're doing naturally is sort of like, I, I always tell people that investing in some ways is unbelievably complex. In other ways, it's literally as easy as buy low, sell high. And the problem with most retail investors and quite frankly, a number of institutional investors, I think because of the pressure from retail investors is to sort of chase performance and typically buy high and then oftentimes using stop losses or whatever ditch things when they oftentimes could be attractive priced. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's fascinating what you say. Uh, and I'm also fascinated about your sock Uh, analogy because you know this goes back to cognitive biases and as you yep. probably know the brain tends to work completely opposite when it comes to financial decisions so i agree with you if you go into a supermarket and they put washing powder at 50 discount you're likely to buy two of those because it's 50 discount but if your stock price falls 50 most people's brains would say we better sell it because it could go to zero Yes, right. And 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 so you're what you're saying is you're applying the 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 supermarket theory to to financial markets which is opposite of what most people do but what fascinates me is what you're doing is opposite of trend following and my previous guest actually uh, last week has just produced uh, uh, along with another gentleman a 400 page book about why trend following has worked over an 800 year period. And mm -hmm. so uh, it's fascinating. Uh, and, you know, at the end of the day, this is trend following is about buying high and, and selling low. And you're doing the opposite. Um, yes. And it's it's so funny that it appears, at least the way you do things, that these completely opposite strategies can actually exist in harmony. Yes, I, I agree with, and that's why I, I definitely say I'm skeptically agnostic about that. In, in that, I, cognitively, I, I actually acknowledge this. Markets are absolutely auto reinforcing in the short term. So, 
I think that it is absolutely possible then, uh, and indeed happens in real life, that people can execute a strategy in a way that they are indeed taking advantage of, of that absolute, and you know, Mike, Mike is completely correct. I mean, I'm sure 800 years of market history does indicate that markets are auto-reinforcing in the short term. And theoretically, if you are you know, nimble enough, I, I think you can make money doing that. And there are people who prove that. I have taken the view, and it 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 it'll be up for debate. I guess we can maybe have this conversation in twenty years and see how things have worked out sure. for me. But but I, I perceive that actually the upside is better by being sort of this deep kind of contrarian. I mean, in some ways, I try to employ in in the currency markets sort of what Warren Buffett has done in equity markets in general. I mean, he has the discipline to say, I'm not going to buy something if the price doesn't look really attractive. And he famously noted that he doesn't really care if equity markets would close for 10 years. He's buying businesses that have extremely long lives. And his internal rate of return, as far as I know, over 50 years is literally a world record. I, I, I mean, it's not just the length, but I mean, it's not the it's not the cumulative return. It's even the annualized return over that time period is, is just unbelievable. And so I'm basically taking a similar view and that I can say, just like he's looking at a company he wants to own into perpetuity, I'm looking at economies and, and their currencies. And is this a currency that, you know, in the next decade is going to be something that is likely going to gain value or lose value? And, and my perception is that that initial determination, while it involves a lot of variables and is not an easy determination, that that determination is one that if valuation levels are extreme enough, you can do with a very high confidence band. Because it is interesting, and this is the skeptical agnostic in me, is that I feel like the kind of following the trend or doing trend following, it's like it really is like you have maybe I don't know what the percentages could be theoretically, but I'm going to say 55% of the time, you know, you're right. And then 45% of the time you're, you're maybe not right. And so you're making, you know, that might be kind of like, uh, it's actually, it's actually much worse. It's, you know, traditional trend following systems will probably only make money 35 to 40% of the time. Oh, but, but interestingly, the gains you'll get on those will eclipse those losses because you've set tight stops. Is that well? The the point of trend following is actually you take your losses very quickly and you let your yes, profits run. So so that's, that's the right. philosophy that has to go along with it. Otherwise, it doesn't work. But right. but but the funny thing is also um, because you know I think you're alluding to that. The re- part of the reason, and I think we talked about this earlier on, part of the reason why your approach worked is the patience and the long time horizon. But, uh, but frankly, one of my uh, previous guests, uh, Scott Billington from Covenant Capital, you know, they're trend followers and they only run their system once a week. And ah. I mean, that, that is super interesting that, that even is. within the same approach, you have people doing wow. very short-term strategies and you wow. have even people doing long-term strategies. And these huh. guys have been around for a long time and they're doing really well. So it, it's just fascinating. I mean, I guess the, the point is there is no wrong or right. And, you know, right. there is part right. science and there's, and there's art involved. And, and you have perfected your art, uh, combined it with some science. Um, and some people say, we're just going to rely on the science and let the computers do the work um, right. and then spend time doing research. And, and it's just fascinating that, that all of these things, um, when, doing, when done properly, um, can make uh, you know, um, interesting profits. And um, yeah, so just to round off this particular topic, 
I often talk to 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 uh, to my guests about sort of how do you enter a trade and how do you exit a trade. You kind of alluded to it, but but what you're saying is that once the a currency, a particular currency, comes up on the on 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 the trade sheet or, or the radar screen saying mm-hmm. it's now getting cheap, you just simply start uh, easing into it. Uh, I imagine, and mm-hmm. and if it goes in your direction and it starts looking a bit expensive or fully priced you you ease out uh, is is that kind of how it works that's exactly right and and one of the things that uh, is a little tricky and situational dependent is like if we have uh, well, I'm going to use the British pound I've been I've been very negative on the British pound for a long long time and uh, the British pound had done reasonably well uh, and had appreciated especially against the dollar up through kind of the middle part of the year and then there's been some rather significant weakness since then um, and so that's a a decision point where it's gotten less attractive, but at the same time, the belief is that it's still got a ways to run. So generally speaking, if I don't feel like there's really compelling sorts of opportunities where I want to redeploy some of that money to take advantage of something that looks even more attractive, you know, generally I'll let that kind of continue to presumably weaken until it gets to, like you said, more of a fair value point. Um, one of the interesting things, and this is where I've been tempted to be a trend follower uh, in the past, and I'll, I'll kind of continually re-examine sort of using my own model and backtesting and whatnot, is that there tends to be a, or there's a tendency for currencies not just to get to fair value, but then go beyond that into an extreme. Sure, sure. And, and historically, I have not tried to ride that because I view that as kind of a dangerous ride because that those reversals from that point tend to be more violent, uh, I found at least historically. And, and as a result, it, it's sort of a risky ride. And again, because we're more strategically driven as opposed to you know, nimbly trading in and trading out. I kind of liken our portfolio sort of like a super tanker. And, you know, you don't t- turn a super tanker generally on a dime, basically. And so I've generally been cautious about trying to ride, you know, winners to the opposite extreme very far, at least. Yeah. I mean, as we were talking about before, uh, in this industry, often you get sort of put into boxes, either you're an end of day trader or you're an intraday trader or you, yep. as I mentioned, even an end of week trader. How would you describe yourself? What are you? We're interesting an in, in end of every two week trader. Okay. <laughs> yes, essentially, you know, we we now we kind of run our uh, proprietary calculus about every two weeks, and in the intervening time period, we're kind of if there's been movements in the in movements in the market value versus fair value. Uh, in that time period, then we use that to kind of uh, modify positions accordingly, basically. So we're not doing a ton of trading. It's more like usually, unless there's a dramatic break. And and similarly, if there's a big event that occurs within the two-week time period, of course, we look and say like, oh, wait, what is A, this done to our portfolio, B, done to our, our risk, our leverage, our risk, and then C, does this create an opportunity that didn't exist four days ago or something like that? And, and occasionally, I mean, I remember one day when the Japanese yen 
moved 6.4% in a day. <laughs> I mean, that, that in currency terms is just, is just a staggering uh, magnitude of a movement, basically. Things like that don't happen very often, uh, but, but when they do, they, they again create both short-term short -term stress, at least if you're on the other side of the trade. Mm. I, I ended up, uh, when the Fukushima uh, nuclear disaster occurred, I was exactly on the wrong end of that trade. I was, I was already getting bearish on the yen, and as that unfolded, you know, massive repatriation into the yen, massive uh, risk-off profile. So, so that was a, a stressful time, but at the same time, that presented a better opportunity even to enter into some short positions, which you know, ultimately were, were quite, quite, quite profitable. Sure. I mean, we're speaking together on the 1st of November 2014, and uh, as most people will know, there's been a bit of news out of Japan in the last uh, 48 hours. Where do you stand on the yen, and what do you think is going on in Japan right now? Yeah, so I, I tell people that the dream scenario as a currency investor is to actually get market intervention in the same direction as where the fundamentals should lead. And so when, when the yen was trading in the 72-75 handle, uh, it, it was I, I just thought it was very, very apparent that a, the, the, the Bank of Japan and the uh, the political and fiscal authorities that be would be doing everything that they could to weaken the yen because as fundamentally an economy that is still very dependent on exports, that price level with the yen made their exports so uncompetitive that it, it was going to be obviously squelching an already slow-moving Japanese economy. So when you have fundamentals that are pointed down and you have a uh, government that is also then, and when Abe came in, he obviously made it quite clear what he wanted to do and he was decisive and had Bank of Japan on board and they have been very successful in devaluing the yen. And I think that there is further weakness long-term to come. The reason why the yen is a very difficult currency to trade slash invest in at the, this current time period is that if history is a guide, and again, I don't think it always repeats like, like precisely, but it definitely tends to have tendencies that are similar, then you would expect if there is a downside uh, dislocation in asset markets that the yen would get a safe haven sure. bid and could appreciate and could appreciate relatively dramatically and quickly. Um, and that's certainly what happened in 2008-2009. So basically, um, I I am not the, the fund is not heavily positioned in the yen. It would be more heavily positioned if we had a macroeconomic overlay that was more uh, sanguine, and we thought that things were looking pretty pretty bullish. Because if that's the case, then you know there are such deep structural issues in Japan uh, and, that I think that the currency longer term definitely looks like it is going to go lower as opposed to higher. If you allow yourself to look into the future, Mark, how much money can a strategy like yours manage? And I guess the answer is, is, is twofold, not just what it can manage, but also what, what you would like to manage in a strategy like this. One of the reasons why I was very drawn to this particular area and this particular structure using the spot market is that with you know $5 trillion of notional values of currencies traded every day, I, I mean, you could, there have been currency funds that have been 
in excess of 10 billion. Uh, I, I think theoretically you could have a currency fund that's 50 billion. And if you're having a strategic as opposed to a high frequency trading approach, you in and of yourself sure. would be unlikely to be able to move markets. And since we do use a strategic approach, you know, I don't want to say unlimited, sure. uh, but, but I, I think you could conceivably even have a nine figure fund and you would still be able to operate it uh, in a manner where you wouldn't be disadvantaging uh, investors by having to deal with bid-ask spreads that are particularly onerous or anything like that. Now, let's move on to one of my favorite topics, and that's uh, let's talk risk management. How do you, do, how do you define risk um, from your point of view? So it is, yeah, that's a very interesting question. I, uh, one of the things that uh, what we have found, at least, is that our Sortino ratio looks better than our Sharp ratio sometimes because we, we do have, you know, upside volatility, which is always a good thing. I mean, I talk to people, I mean, volatility is volatility, but risk is risk and volatility are in, intricately intertwined, but they don't exactly equate to the same precise thing. Sure. And, and what I've told people too is that uh, like a lot of things in investing, I think that there's this internal sort of uh, paradox where what is actually deemed to be extremely risky can be about the safest thing to do and vice versa. What I mean by that is, is that, and this is one of the things where we look at sentiment indicators uh, and especially things like complacency and especially extreme levels of complacency. When investors are the most confident and money managers have the least amount of cash on the sidelines, uh, you that is almost without exception, you know, when it gets to extreme levels, a time where the market peak has occurred and the downside can be rather dramatic. Similarly, in March of 2009, nobody wanted, I shouldn't say nobody, there were very few of us that were like wanting to touch risk on assets with a 10 foot pole, you know, just because of the unbelievable level of uh, price action in the downward direction that had taken place. So we approach risk and volatility as such something where we, one of the reasons why having 22 currencies, and we always have some positions in all 22 currencies, because even if a particular currency doesn't have a very big variation from fair value, that currency serves as important, quote, ballast, if you will, for the overall portfolio. If we used a very much of a barbell strategy and we were just kind of like really long the top two or three currencies that looked attractive on paper and really short the top two or three that looked awful, we would be exposing our investors and the fund to you know levels of risk and volatility that are really extreme. Because we're able to invest in all 22 currencies, take those positions, we approach um, risk from a level of backtesting what I had done for 12 years now. And the nice thing about that is that those are 12 years, which were not exactly placid markets oftentimes. <laughs> there were enough in serious dislocations where the effect it had on um, my portfolio would be at the time, uh, would likely be about as big of a black swan event as you are likely to come across. So we've chosen a leverage uh, ratio, which I kind of alluded to previously, which is significantly less than the leverage that I was using as an individual and targeted a uh, ratio specifically where our biggest drawdown based on historical data and my returns would be 30%. Yeah. Um, and so we figured that using a strategic 
approach like we did, where I'm always telling investors that this is not worth something where I'm guaranteeing you consistent returns on a monthly basis, but that in a worst, hopefully in a worst case scenario, that uh, that's something that we could, you know, weather and recover from and still profit in the long term. I want to ask you about another kind of risk, which I'm not sure I've gotten it right. So it may be a, a question which is not applicable. But if I understand you right, you take your funds money and you buy different currencies uh, and you use spot markets. So I, I imagine that they are sitting in, in a bank account somewhere in different currency accounts. Yeah, yes, correct. Have you thought about, and this is something that we obviously saw uh, under the financial crisis, that um, there are limits to what uh, governments will guarantee uh, when it comes to bank accounts, which obviously made the futures markets incredibly attractive because you have a central clearing um, firm sitting in the middle, which is not a bank, and that becomes your counterpart. Um, yes. And therefore, uh, the risk that one day you're going to wake up and either the bank has gone out of business or um, something else happens to those cash balances. Given your approach, how how does that side of the risk table look? Do you think? And is some yeah. is that something that you you've considered, given the fact that the financial system is a bit stretched? And probably the uh, systemic risks are, you know, in my opinion, most likely to be bigger today because financial institutions did not become smaller. They actually ended up becoming bigger despite right. the wishes of the authorities. How do you how do you view that kind of risk? Yeah, no, that that's also a super issue to raise. Um, and it is something that I've thought a lot about and uh, partly because Again, going into the 2008-2009 financial crisis, I had been a deep critic of the amount of leverage in the financial sector that the, you know, Fed had turned a blind eye to. I remember, uh, you know, Greenspan talking about the stabilizing effect that derivatives have on the market and things like that. And and you know, it's 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 like the term hedge fund itself is kind of brings up that same thing. I mean, theoretically, you could use a hedge fund to truly do nothing but like be like 50% long, 50% short, reduce your volatility, and pres- you know, presumably try to have an absolute return kind of strategy. But in reality, as you know, uh, most hedge funds, quite frankly, use leverage to exacerbate uh, exposure and risk as opposed to mitigate it. And that's obviously what happened with the derivatives market as well. So I was following the financial sector quite closely. Now, you know, to be honest, I actually thought that uh, Lehman should be the model and not the exception. I mean, I, I'm a believer that uh, asymmetric risk is inherently unstable, unstable for the overall system as a whole. And anytime you're telling bankers that as you have a situation where, yeah, go ahead and leverage your assets like crazy, sure. make all the profits you can while times are good. And when things hit the fan, we'll bail you out and we'll make you essentially whole, maybe sure. not entirely whole, but essentially whole. So that, you know, the profits that you had in the years where you were able to execute your strategy, you know, recklessly, if you will, more than offset the the times where you take a small haircut or whatever. I sadly believe that, and this is an interesting kind of paradox of sorts, where 
despite the fact I wish things were different, I am convinced that uh, that especially the United States government, and I think that it would be able to have enough financial wherewithal, even with the Fed exploding its balance sheet, that it would uh, make sure that no entity like the entity that we use to basically maintain our uh, our cash reserves or whatever would be allowed to go under. And so, sadly, that implicit backing by the government—I'm saying sadly because I think sure. from a structural level, it is a—it's a very it's a it's a broken system and we're inviting we're, that's the problem what the frustrating thing is is that from an investor it creates great opportunity from somebody who's just a citizen who wants to see everybody have as good of a standard of living and as stable an economic background or backdrop as possible it's miserable because the monetary political forces that be are essentially exacerbating the magnitude of the various crises that they're building into the system by failing to let markets work. Markets work if you just let markets clear and you let vulture capitalists come in, soak everything up. What you do is instead of something like TARP, where you bail out the entities responsible for the carnage, you essentially would bail out any individual investor up to a certain wealth threshold or something. So you're making sure that you know Jane and Joe Smith uh, don't lose their retirement account or their savings account or something like that, but you let the you know relatively super affluent speculators go by the way of the dodo bird essentially, and that's that's the glory or that's the beauty of market discipline. When those when those price signals are completely short circuited, it, it creates systemic vulnerability and risk that just heightens over time, and I I, I just become so very concerned about that. But. But then again, on the short term, it's very helpful for me because I have this sure. implicit implicit guarantee, essentially, that where where I'm banking, it's going to be around next week and next month and next year. Sure. Yeah. Let's jump to a very related topic, namely the drawdowns. And you already mentioned that uh, the kind of drawdown you expect with your leverage that you employ is about 30 percent. I'm not so in so much interested in that because we've we've talked about that for for a bit but sure. i'm but i'm very interested in the emotional roller coaster that drawdowns um has on investors but also on fund managers and in particular someone like yourself because Often when I talk to um, my guests, they use systematic strategies. So they always make the point that um, that's part of their strength is that they have these systems in place and they can kind of disassociate themselves from, from the drawdown and it helps them get through uh, the difficult times. How, how do you cope with drawdowns and, and the periods of, of, losing, uh, of losing money? How do you... Um, emotionally deal with that side of things? Yeah, I, I, I think that uh, there is behavior that is learned and there's behavior that is innate. And I, I think I am blessed as an investor and fund manager because you know, I think that the chief virtue that I have that I don't really have to work at is I'm just very stoic. Um, and I think stoicism, in fact, there's a great book uh, recently published. It's very, very short. It's called The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday, I think is his name. And uh, essentially, it's kind of a, a way of uh, taking the views of, say, Seneca and Marcus Aurelius and, uh, and applying it in everyday life. And that book very much resonated with me because uh, it's this idea that Knowing what you can affect in life and what you cannot 
is such an important distinction. And for me, I feel like if I can't affect something in life, if all I can do is essentially react and analyze, and that's as a fund manager what I'm doing, then as long as I'm doing my job the best I can, uh, then and as long as my analysis is sound, then those short-term losses are going to be that. They are going to be short-term. I will get through this as long as I've managed the risk effectively going into it and I'm not over-leveraged. And that after 12 years is, you know, the valuable lessons I feel like I've learned. And as a result, I sort of have half of the consolation that some of your other guests have had in that because this strategy is at its heart a calculus-driven strategy where I can look and say, based on all the academic work I've done going back over 25 years now, I am confident enough in this system, this approach, that if this is telling me that this particular currency is egregiously undervalued and it's still going down, then I can sleep pretty well at night because I've not just got the 25 years of work, but I've also got the economic history I've studied before that. Kind of like you mentioned, Mike just wrote a book about the last 800 years of market history is that I'm a big believer in knowing history. And I actually, one of my favorite topics to study is sort of economic bubbles in history and knowing how people behave and knowing that people generally do, and you alluded to this earlier, they do exactly the opposite of what's in their actual economic best interest because at the time they're sort of blinded. They they do. And I remember hearing very recently that despite, I think in the last 10 years, the S&P 500 being up approximately 11% annualized a year, the average retail equity investor has obtained about 4% returns. So the average person has basically captured about 35% of the gains, largely because of this tendency to buy high and sell low. So for me, I take solace in the fact that I've learned, I've, I've read these lessons in history, I've seen enough market history, I've employed a strategy I feel very comfortable with, and if the market is telling me I'm, quote, wrong, um, then I am confident enough to basically be able to weather the storm and, and, again, sleep pretty well at night. Now, I will tell you honestly, going from an individual investor to a hedge fund manager makes my sleep a little bit less sound than it once was. In other words, mm. I know all of those things, but I have a lot of investors who have invested in me because they they just have general confidence. They don't necessarily know the intricacies of my strategy or anything of the sort. And I know for them, you know, I vicariously sort of carry their burden. And that that that's the hardest thing, in my opinion, about being a fund manager is dealing with losses on behalf of your investors. Sure. No, absolutely. Now, and, and those drawdowns that does occur from time to time, and even though you say that, I mean, you weather the storm, and it doesn't it doesn't sound to me like you, and, and I guess that would be quite hard anyway, to kind of override your own self, which is, uh, you know, what you would do or would have to do if, 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 if you were to realize to say, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm wrong here. But, but I'm more interested in do you learn anything from going through a drawdown? Is there anything that you take away from it and saying, actually, I could have done this a little bit different? Yes, uh, that that is actually fair. And I think that having endured several, uh, probably several drawdowns in excess of, of 20% uh, individually, sure. and so far our biggest drawdown as a fund has been about 18 and a half, that 
being able to have the courage of one's convictions, I think, is the, the thing I continually learn. Like after every drawdown, I look and kind of do what we just kind of alluded to. Like, you know, is there a strategy that I could have employed which would have kind of more optimized the results? And frankly, more often than not, I am able to dollar cost average in, mm. but not quite as aggressively as what would have been optimal. Now, obviously, you need to you need to balance that. And the reason why I don't always dollar cost average in aggressively is because now I know, wait a second, um, I'm if I'm down 18 and a half percent and I'm thinking things are looking very, very attractive, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that my investors next month, if it takes another three or four months for this thing to turn around or however long it takes, are going to be able to feel as good about the fund. So I'm, I guess I've had to modify the aggressiveness with which I go in partly because I want to obviously create a fund where my investors need to sleep well at night too overall. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, shifting gear again um, to research. Let's talk a little bit about uh, sort of research uh, in, in, in your world. What's interesting about research I find is that a lot of it is about asking the right questions. And I can imagine in the uh, big firms where you have teams of researchers that uh, the conversations going on when they meet uh, is quite interesting and and lots of good questions being asked but if you as in your case are doing most of the work yourself um, mm -hmm. it becomes asking yourself questions which is you know a very interesting uh, concept um, what are you asking yourself when you think about when you put on your research hat and and think about the the approach Right. Right. So uh, it really does help to have a naturally dialectical mind, because I, I think that the easy tendency, as you know, as, as an investor or anything else in life is confirmation bias. Mm. You, you tend to gravitate towards those ideas, those people, uh, those articles, those books that, that generally are going to reinforce and support your own opinion going in. Um, but because I tend to be a devil's advocate by nature, and I don't know, this might be speaking to my mental health, I suppose, <laughs> I, I tend to carry on an internal conversation in my mind where half of me will be kind of articulating one side of a particular argument, but then it's like, well, wait a second, let's re-examine this and look at it from a different perspective. Mm. And, and that's where I think being able to be as... Uh, I am kind of a big believer in in sort of the art of war theory that you know you have to know thy enemy right so what I try to do is I try to constantly say if I'm as I said I'm defensive going forward in terms of the future of the general macroeconomic backdrop sure. but I try to make sure that I'm constantly exposing myself to those people who are saying no wait you know we have winds that are back we have unlimited monetary bullets that we can spend you know we have supportive governments in place uh, there's a lot of the shakedown has already occurred. We're in a base building stage. We've got disruptive technologies that are going to you know, make things better. We have emerging markets that are becoming increasingly affluent. And so there, there obviously is a whole series of, of, of cases for uh, or reasons to believe in the other side of the case. So for me to kind of constantly carry on this both internal dialogue, which is usually spawned by reading something that isn't necessarily something that I particularly agree with or whatever, has been the most important thing. Now, obviously, with Evan coming on board, it's nice because now I have a, a real person. I can say, hey, <laughs> does this make any sense or am I completely out in left field? So. Yeah, absolutely. I often get asked, uh, and I guess this goes to, you know, towards more 
more the, the systematized uh, uh, strategies um, where uh, uh, a lot of my listeners are actually interested in finding out how do you detect if something is wrong, you know, a yellow flag or red flag for a certain model or strategy. Is there anything at all in your way of doing things where you uh, could be given a, a yellow or red flag that, that something structurally had changed that, that basically meant you had to go back to the drawing board and say, actually, this input or this part of the uh, maybe more the scientific model uh, is, 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 is not valid anymore? Yes, yes, absolutely. And, and we briefly alluded to it earlier, which is the, the one instance where I've actually made a, a structural you know, modification of yeah. consequence to the to the model related to the Swiss franc, which was I All was right. shorting okay. the Swiss franc for, you know, three years, I think. And I was like, well, you know, it's, it, it keeps staying at this like perpetually elevated state. And, and I, I can't reconcile it using the traditional macroeconomic tools I was utilizing. And so then it came to this, you know, conclusion, which I think has generally been supported in the last eight, nine years or so that, that the market is going to give a premium that I need to build into my model uh, that is going to basically elevate the Swiss franc at a level beyond which I would think otherwise should or would be the case. Can part of your approach be backtested, Mark? Yes, absolutely. And in fact, that was one of the things when I first started doing this that I that I did is I tried to look back to 1985 was kind of a key moment for me because that was the Plaza Accords and that was sort of the the peak of the dollar before it entered its sort of like structural decline. And I've looked at some back testing models for elements of the strategies I, I use going all the way back to 1971 and Nixon going off the gold standard, because that, quite frankly, is really the genesis of modern currency Sure. Uh, that fundamental evaluation so yeah interesting i want to jump to uh, another uh, i've got a couple of uh, topics left and and i want to jump to uh, the next one which is more the the business side of of things um how do you and again i think it's such an interesting um stage of your business development you're in um and so i think a lot of people will will benefit from from hearing your view on that. But in today's world, given what's uh, been happening in the last few years, both from performance point of view, both from investor sentiment point of view towards hedge fund, CTA strategies, etc. How do you go about trying to drum up interest in your strategy and in your in your fund? Well, I guess if I had to be frank, I might say quite poorly <laughs> um, <laughs> in that I I actually loathe the marketing and sales side of the business. And sure. in fact, one can argue that I made sort of a classic uh, entrepreneurial mistake of, you know, as as I've, again, many times said, what a great addition Evan is to the firm. I, in some ways, hired sort of a mini me, if you will. And Evan's actually much taller than I am. So I should say, you know, maybe more like a junior me. And uh, and it might have been more advantageous to hire like a chief marketing officer or something of that nature. My my view has continued to be that if I do more thought leadership, because, again, I do think there is something to this idea where I essentially feel like I'm an evangelist, if you will, for currencies as an asset class. Like the message is definitely one that is not 
well understood in the overall marketplace. And so I want to continue to kind of do that. And and just as I've been able to kind of acquire some investors along the way from this kind of process, I feel good about that because it's not so much me marketing me, it's me marketing this message, if you will. Like I, I, I'm not the only guy looking at fundamental approaches to currencies. Uh, and as a result, I can feel good about delivering the message basically. But we have, um, uh, begun to use a cap intro kind of uh, service basically and are beginning to talk to at this point now that we have about a two and a half year track record sure. we can now begin to talk to the institutions that you know a year ago were well we just don't have a long enough track record as a hedge fund to really even seriously consider you so we're now beginning to enter into some conversations because up to this point it's been strictly uh, you know essentially the entire investor base is high net worth individuals and obviously that's a wonderful group of people to have on board um, it's harder to move the needle so to speak in sure. assets under management in that approach versus moving into the institutional world sure another thing i wanted to ask you about it's it's not really sort of about the business it's, it's also uh, i guess about you and your thinking your mindset and that is you start out as an entrepreneur and you have a certain tolerance for risk. And clearly, when you were managing your own money, you had an even higher tolerance for risk. Yes. Um, now, with clients on board, you've lowered that. What do you think when you are so close to the trading as you are uh, compared to a fully systematic uh, firm? Um, how do you avoid... Uh, changing your mindset when it comes to risk? How do you avoid becoming more risk averse as your firm grows and as you have more to lose, uh, so to speak? Because I think that's a that's a challenge. Um, and it's a challenge for the investors because they buy a firm expecting a certain risk and performance profile. And then suddenly this manager becomes successful. And and that profile changes, and often it becomes much lower. How do you how do you how do you think about that? Or maybe you don't uh, just yet. Well, and I, I think I was. You've identified sort of how I was initially going to answer, which is that I am in the process of thinking about that prospectively. But since our assets under management are still modest enough at this point, I haven't practically had to wrestle with that. I will tell sure. you that in planning for that, uh, and. I know that that did happen to me individually. I mean, when I had a year savings in the bank and thought, okay, well, my default plan is to basically go ahead and get just a different job. I acted very differently than when I had grown that substantially. And I was planning on using this as a means of support for the rest of my life in terms of starting the hedge fund and still being able to, you know, take care of my family and all of that. It, and it, it did change how I viewed risk. So what I am planning on doing is what I realized that's a little challenging about the fund that I have is that uh, you know, as far as the high net worth individuals we even have on board is there are some of them that are doctors and lawyers. And for them, a 5% move in a month is extremely uncomfortable. Mm. Then I have, you know, a handful of entrepreneurs and they're like, wait, you know, I expected this to be juiced. What's going on? We're not getting enough volatility. And so my, my plan is actually to uh, have uh, hopefully three different hedge funds that essentially use the same strategy and just employ different leverage levels. So that way, you know, those people who are looking for, you know, a real high beta, high return, a presumably high return strategy would have an option. Those that are looking uh, to basically hit a lot of singles would also be able to find something as well. Are you 
educating, I don't know whether that's the right word, but are you trying to transfer your knowledge to Evan so that the key man risk, which we all get asked about when we start out, um, if we're not fully systematic, um, so that the key man risk issue, which uh, a lot of institutional investors for sure would, uh, would uh, right. you know, be concerned about. Without a doubt. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And in fact, uh, I was really insistent upon bringing on Evan as a junior partner as opposed to just a senior analyst and actually providing equity in the firm. Because, A, as an entrepreneur, I really and I'm an Austrian in my economic beliefs. Generally, I'm a little sure. heterodox, but Austrian is probably the, the, the majority influence. And I really believe in sort of the power of the entrepreneur and the entrepreneurial spirit. And so to have an ownership interest and to look at this as not just a Job, but as a business that I hope to when I retire, which I hope won't be for another 20 or so years, you know, can then pass along. And in the meantime, though, I am absolutely. Um, in fact, the the only hiccup we had in our employment relationship was we took us a long time to sign a confidentiality agreement, uh, partly because of how sensitive everything was in terms of disclosing kind of the keys to the kingdom, sure. if you will. And, and sure. once we were able to do that, though, I've quickly, as quickly as possible, tried to get him in a position where, you know, should something befall me, uh, that he would be able to execute upon this strategy uh, very effectively. And that I expect will be a three to five year process. Sure. But I mean, he definitely is quickly grasping all of the key elements of the strategy. You made another decision when you started your firm, and that's basically the location of your business. And And obviously, you're located away from the busy streets of uh, the big financial centers. How do you think that impacts either your business positively or, or negatively? Well, that's an interesting question as well. I, I would have to say, and maybe it's just because raising capital has been more challenging than I thought, that that it is overall been sort of a disadvantage. I do have friends in the in the New York area, San Francisco area, Los Angeles area, Chicago area, and it definitely appears to be just easier that their general social relationships employ enough people who have meaningful connections that it's easier for them to basically get in front of the right people uh, than it would be for me, I perceive at least. But I don't perceive it's a big enough disadvantage that it's going to, in a medium to long run, really hamstring. I, I, I'm confident that, again, with a strategy that is a sound strategy, even if it takes me a little longer to meet the right people I need to meet, that uh, eventually that this will work out well. Absolutely. A couple of uh, questions before we move to the final topic uh, I wanted to talk to you about. Um, one is that if you could ask a question of my next guest, meaning a peer, a hedge fund manager, maybe even taking into account where you are in your business. So let's say the next guest is someone who's been around for 20 years, built a substantial business. Is there anything you would like to ask them? I guess it would relate to the struggle between, I, I, yeah, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm, this is kind of an evolving thing in my mind, but sure. to me, the most difficult thing going forward is this notion that one might be constantly tempted and potentially even 
it might be demanded of one to change one's fundamental investing philosophy and approach to satisfy investor demand. And that's what I guess I am most concerned about, because up to this point, I've had the luxury of accepting mostly friends and family money and then connections of friends and family. So quite frankly, during our drawdown, I didn't get a single phone call saying, hey, what the heck's going on? Or I want to get out of my lockup or whatever it might be. But I know that especially as one goes through a career where they're answering to institutional money and, and oftentimes very big checks, that the pressures to be able to modify strategy to accommodate those individuals. How does one handle that? And, and and is there strategies or approaches that person has used to be able to remain true to oneself while at the same time having a viable business? Yeah. I mean, if I could just comment on that, please, based I'd on be... my 25 years uh, of experience, I would yes. say that that is a very interesting point. Because when we start out as a small manager, we look at all the big boys and we aspire to them. We aspire to be like them. And often we believe that that is what the institutions want and therefore we should look like them. But at the same time, we know that in order to attract the attentions of investors, we need to be different. We need to differentiate ourselves. And actually, my conclusion is that the only thing that really differentiate us from each other is ourselves it's the manager itself so in in a sense i think we need to preserve our uniqueness and we need to be true to ourselves and not try and emulate you know a winton or an aspect or an ahl or whatever they're Mm -hmm. called Mm -hmm. because they do what they do so well and so if an investor want that profile they should buy it from them they shouldn't buy it from you they shouldn't buy it from me and so staying true to yourself I think it's the best thing for the investor. It's the best thing for you. But as you rightly say, it's probably also one of the hardest things that we have to battle with. So mm. I guess um, certainly in, 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 in my past, uh, uh, we used a, a, a tagline saying, you know, different, but not too different. And I think that's probably where the investor's sweet spot lie, that they don't need another, uh, you know, typical manager in their portfolio. Um, they need something a little bit different. But Got if it's it. too different, it becomes a problem. So anyway. Well, that's very helpful, Niels. No, absolutely. That, and that, that actually briefly, if, if, if I could add one thing, sure, which uh, your, your, your thoughts, I think, dovetail really nicely with one of my other uh, friends uh, who had been in the money management business for a long time said that the most valuable thing that I could probably do is to actually turn down money, is that there will be instances where there might be opportunities to uh, have investable funds, but they're going to be on terms where you feel like either A, the client is going to be unbelievably difficult to deal with in terms of a relationship and, and to satisfy, or they might be looking for you to, as you alluded to, sort of change who you are and that the right answer should be, uh, you know, hey, I'm not that person and, and you probably need to talk to somebody else. So I appreciate your thoughts there. Sure, sure. I wonder whether it's like, uh, you know, having a girlfriend or when you're a kid, uh, you know, that you, you get someone into your life and the first thing they start to do is they try to change you and it never works out and it probably, right, right. probably doesn't work out in our business either. Now, um, uh, one final question in this area, I just wanted to ask you, now clearly you have been dealing with uh, potential investors and, 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 and current investors um, asking you questions from a due diligence point of view and probably had you know, due diligence conversations in general. 
What do you feel investors, when they look at a strategy like yours, should be asking you, but maybe they're not asking you? I guess, and this is kind of the general question that I, I think is important that I don't generally hear in enough detail, at least, and I would similarly want to be posing this to managers that I had, is, is the view of sort of what is your repeatable alpha and what is the basis for it? In other words, I mean, I, I think and especially because the currency world, and I was thinking a lot, even kind of subconsciously, I think, as our conversation has evolved about kind of how you were talking about an approach like mine and trend following existing in harmony. And I, I think that's really insightful and correct. And I was thinking specifically about why in my sector in particular, in terms of currencies, why then has there been this, this languishing in terms of aggregate performance? And it, it strikes me that part of it might be the, the source of the investable funds, meaning that it very well could be that a trend following strategy may have more efficacy in certain markets where there's a lot of retail participants that fall into the same cognitive traps over and over and over. And it's repeatable because human behavior becomes very predictable at a retail level. But in the currency market, you don't really have any kind of retail people that are of any consequence whatsoever. You're talking about major institutions, major money. And if they're all kind of deploying a similar strategy, at what point, you know, if you're not able to count on the other person basically making the same mistake because they're employing a strategy that's a quote smart strategy like yours, what becomes the source of alpha? And so I don't usually get a lot of people kind of asking me that question outright. And, and that's a conversation I, I'm happy to have, but I, I think it's an important one in general. Now let's go to the last section of uh, our conversation and I call it general and fun so it'll probably be a little bit all over the place but uh, we'll, we'll see how we get on. Um, <laughs> um, in your mind and, 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 and in your experience what, what does it take to become a great trader? I mean you've done it. I mean you, you, you've gone from being a lawyer and, and today you're a successful uh, hedge fund manager and you in between have been a very successful uh, you know, private investor. What does it take? Well, when I think about the most important traits, kind of off the top of my head, I, I would have to say intelligence slash insight, discipline, patience, passion, integrity, and humility. Mm -hmm. I, I think th those are the ones that kind of immediately spring to mind as far as uh, I, I think in concert with one another, those traits in particular, uh, I, I think, would serve as a tremendous backbone to creating a great trader. Mm. Has the entrepreneurial gene always been inside you, Mark? Did you know from the very beginning that one day I'm going to have my own business, whether it be a law business or some other business? Actually, I should have told you a story in the very beginning part of our of our interaction, because in addition to kind of the interest I had in, in uh, stocks from a very early age, when I was in college, I was going to be a junior in college, and I had somebody who stayed overnight as a prospective student who had a baseball card business. And I had been working as, as like 
uh, an assistant in a deli making minimum wages like between my freshman and sophomore year. <laughs> and I heard about this and I heard about this market for baseball cards in the mid 80s. And, you know, it was crazy. And uh, I know that you're not in the United States, but basically what had happened is there was just this real surge of, of collectible uh, baseball cards where prices actually skyrocketed through the roof. It was my very first practical uh, in a practical um, interaction with a world where there was essentially a dynamic and very frothy market. And sure enough, I was a baseball card owner, uh, a company of baseball cards I sold nationally through trade publications and con conventions and whatnot, and a speculator in my own right. And just like what happened in terms of so many other kind of speculative bubbles, Fortunately, I had the foresight at the time to think that this is becoming really frothy. And I remember specifically being at this convention and there was one particular player, Eric Davis of the Reds, who had hit two home runs that day and his card spiked like five dollars in value. And I was like, this has all the trappings of and I didn't have the, the, the I didn't have the language, the vocabulary in my sure. mind yet. But th this has all this you know, trappings of a speculative bubble. This looks like I remember reading about the tulip bubble in the Netherlands. It's like this is it. So I, I ended up exiting uh, very quickly. So. So that is indicative of the fact that I wanted to own a business. I wanted to do something kind of on my own terms, uh, partly because I find that I, I'm a pretty miserable employee, but a better kind of somebody who's kind of working for myself and directing, I think, you know, other people and the like. So now, of course, you know, we've sort of talked a little bit about why you do what you do today, but phrased in a slightly different way. What is it about the job that you really like or that you love, so to speak? Yeah, recently uh, I did this sort of genius zone exercise with this entrepreneurial group I'm part of. And the idea is to kind of figure out what it is that not just that you're good at, but what sure. you get energy and passion out of. And uh, frankly, this is part of it. I love talking ideas. I love you know, the the internet. And one of the reasons why I immediately the first thing I did out of college was to get into teaching is that that kind of forum where you know, I might be presenting an idea or a perspective that is completely new and unique that somebody hadn't quite thought of that way or whatever is such an exciting kind of dynamic for me that that's what really gets me motivated and, and passionate. And then the second thing that I'm really passionate about is problem solving and putting together puzzles. So for me, the actual like excitement of being able to like look at a whole series of currencies and think to myself, okay, trying to connect all the dots globally and whatnot, where do where are things going to be evolving in this future time period is a really fun endeavor in and of itself. So I'd say those are the two things that get me like really jazzed and excited. Mm. And and in the journey of uh, setting up your own hedge fund and, and, and becoming a hedge fund manager, is there anyone out there that you've sort of looked at and said, you know, yeah, that, that looks like a great firm. I'd, you know, I aspire to what they do. Uh, is there anyone out there uh, as such? Well, I guess going way back uh, as sort of like an inspiration in terms sure. of the genesis of this idea, I'd say what George Soros and Jim Rogers did is is sort of to me the epitome of what I would like to emulate in that, you know, they had the, the foresight, the courage um, depth of analysis to specifically with the British pound, but they did this mm. in a number of other investments as well, to basically call the Bank of England's bluff. And, mm. and again, not a lot of people had the courage to stand in everybody in the United States, of course, you say, don't fight the Fed. Well, 
in the short term, that's absolutely true. But in the long run, it could be very, very profitable to fight the Fed, actually, <laughs> because they, they might be engaged in a game that that is a confidence game, essentially. They're trying to keep all the balls in the air. And, sure. and ultimately, at the end of the day, when you get a dislocation, that could be a tremendously profit-generating opportunity. And so I see kind of what they did, and that was kind of the model of, of how both opportunistic – I guess, for lack of a better word, sort of a vulture capitalist, if you will, that I, I kind of like to be. So if you do decide to break the Fed one day, please do come and share that with uh, my <laughs> audience before before you do it. Uh, I think we would appreciate that, actually. Um, Absolutely. Now, uh, you clearly read a lot of books, uh, uh, I gather, from our conversation. Uh, which books stand out for you? Either it could be a book that has helped tremendously on the trading side, And maybe also a book that has really inspired you in in a bigger in a bigger way, uh, if I yep. can put it like that. Absolutely, yeah. So I'd say regarding um, my that the two books, kind of in the industry, if you will, that I think were very influential for me is one is When Genius Failed by Roger Lowenstein, uh, which chronicles uh, the, the whole collapse of long-term capital management. And I, I find that to be such a great read because it gets to that piece I had alluded to before about investing, great investors. When I look to other investors I want to follow and emulate or invest in myself, I look for humility because mm -hmm. the bottom line is that with, with, with so many external variables and extrinsic shocks to the system, To and that's why I kind of I never watch CNBC in the United States at least basically but 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 one of the things I find kind of laughable is whenever I do they always have the guests and where's the S&P 500 going to end at the end of this year and somebody will say oh, I think it's going to be 1635 or something crazy specific like that and and so to me this creates this artificial sense of sort of precision and prognostication and prediction in a world which is very messy and hard to uh, control for all the variables so when genius fails is a great example of when hubris runs completely amok and what kind of carnage can result. The the second book, even though I kind of reject the underlying thesis, I think that he brings up so many great things about, about discipline, patience, and the importance of fees in investing is Bogle on mutual funds, actually. I mean, I am anything but a passive index investor in the aggregate, but I do think index investing for most retail clients, especially if you use it in a way that's sort of strategically driven by taking advantage of particular sectors or markets that are undervalued can indeed be a fantastic way to, to generate very good returns. So those are sort of the two books in the field. But then one of the books that has been absolutely seminal for me is uh, Henry Hazlitt's Economics in One Lesson. Uh, that is really literally kind of framed to a large degree my perception on sort of the overall macroeconomy and interactions of the major players within and, and especially the role of government and especially in a in an era of rampant neo-Keynesianism, I, I find it to be an extremely compelling read even now, what was I think it was written in 47 and last updated in the 70s, but just a tremendous read. And then last but not least, uh, a book that actually I think is one of the most important books of nonfiction that's been written in the last hundred plus years is Thomas Kuhn's Uh, the structure structure of scientific revolutions, mm -hmm. which was done as a master's thesis. But the thing about it that I think applies to investing so well is that it basically identifies how there's this tendency of paradigms to become predominant in ways of thinking. And there's like a vested interest. It's, it's very Hegelian in his approach. And there's this vested interest that seeks to kind of 
push away anything challenging the prevailing paradigm. And when I look at asset markets and I look at when bubbles form, I, mm. I see that dynamic presenting itself over and over and over again. And I think that to have the courage to be able to say, wait a second, the existing paradigm is fundamentally flawed in its approach. There is a better different way of looking at things that results in this expected outcome is has been a real important thing to literally frame the way I kind of think. Mm. Interesting. Great stuff. Um, now, you have taken us through a journey which, on the outside at least, seems to have gone pretty much according to plan. But I would say that most uh, entrepreneurs... Um, they have struggles and they uh, fail along the way. That's how we learn. Mm -hmm. Has there been any failures, if I can use that word, uh, in, in your journey? I, absolutely. I think that, I, for me at least, when we've had capital losses, I never see, I don't, I shouldn't say I never, I mean, in the sense of would never, but obviously capital losses in excess of what my risk parameters would beer or something like that would be a failure because, you know, here I've set these kind of parameters in place, these expectations, and clearly something would have gone wrong. But, you know, having a drawdown or, or something like that for a period of time, I don't see as a failure. But sure. I, I have seen the the lack of, of being able to grow AUM to be so far at least a failure. And part of it is something that is definitely, quote, on me. I mean, if I was a marketer better, you know, about doing that, I, I think that I'd probably be in a different place, but then that's not really me either. So, uh, but I do think I've sort of failed to kind of like institutionalize sort of an approach, which would probably have gotten me further down the road of where I want to be. And perhaps having this long runway is both a blessing and a curse because I, <laughs> I've talked to entrepreneurs in the past and, you know, when, when you have like, you know, a month's worth of, uh, of living expenses in the bank, you do things in a very urgent way that you might sure. not do if you've kind of in a different position. So yeah. I'd say that that's been kind of the one thing where I look back and I could say, yeah, I've really kind of failed and moving kind of down the road more substantially on that front. Sure, sure. How do you measure success? What does it mean to you? Success, in my book at least, is is being able to live a life worth living and meaning that it's both enjoyable to live and that you're hopefully making life better for not just yourself, your family, other people around you. Um, and, and so it, for me at least, that means plugging into what I think is my genius zone, right, is to do those things where I feel like I am providing a value-added service and hopefully, you know, the goal of having a, a fund is that, you know, if you feel like you have a strategy that has individually been profitable for however length of time is to be able to, you know, share that and have other people, you know, uh, add, be, uh, be impacted by that success as well. And so for me, a successful life is really making sure that my family, my friends, my investors, hopefully, you know, that they're, they're benefiting from the fact that I'm doing what I'm doing. Fantastic. Great stuff. Two more questions left. So uh, we're almost there. Could you tell me a fun fact about you? Something that even people who knows you may not know about you. <laughs> uh, let me see. Uh, um, well, I, I guess that one thing was is that uh, through high school and college, I was a fairly serious rock drummer of all things. And what makes that fact a little more fun is the fact that uh, one of my 
casual friends from high school, ended up becoming the drummer for Pearl Jam, a rather small group here in the Northwest you may have heard of. Sure. And so at some point in time, I thought, boy, I, I, I don't know if going to college was the right thing. I mean, there's what Martin yeah. Gladwell's uh, uh, thing where if you spend 10,000 hours doing something, you can master it. I, maybe I would have been better off spending five <laughs> years banging on the drums. The, the good news is, is that I, I kid you not, is that occasionally if the stresses and strains of dealing with massive volatility in the currency market hits me, I can always pull out my drum set and bang away for an hour or two. And that that actually relieves stress to some degree. <laughs> Great stuff, Mark. Now, I asked you earlier about um, what investors may not be asking, what do they fail to ask. So I want to turn it on my myself uh, at the very end. And that is, um, what have I missed today? What what have I not asked you that uh, I should have done? And uh, I want to make sure I do full justice to you and, and, and to Whitmore Capital uh, Management. So is there anything that we need to bring up at the very end here? Well, the one thing that I, again, I'm a, I'm a guy who loves to kind of get on a hobby horse about messages. And, and the one thing that gets me pretty worked up and passionate about is essentially what's wrong with the hedge fund industry. And for me, I feel like the biggest flaw and the biggest disservice is essentially a fee structure that has historically disproportionately benefited hedge fund managers. There's a guy, Barry Ritholtz, out of New York, and uh, I, I heard him speak, and he said that he found the statistic that in the nine years prior to 2013 that the hedge fund managers had made approximately $375 billion in terms of fees generated and, and uh, capital returns and all of that. Hedge fund investors had had netted about $80 billion. So roughly 80-some-odd percent of the spoil of hedge funds had essentially gone to the managers. And as a retail investor for you know the vast majority of my life, I feel very convicted about the fact that and oftentimes financial services is, is sort of like the casino and the house always wins, right? And so trying to create a, a fee structure uh, that is something that actually does a service to investors, I think is the greatest need slash calling for hedge fund managers presently. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, that that certainly is an important uh, point. Uh, I do want to just add to that is I, I because there has been some press about this uh, uh, yes. maybe a year ago. And I think actually a lot of the fees were not necessarily going to the managers, but were going to the houses, if we can call them that, that goes in between the investors right. and, and the manager. So so just to, to add that little caveat, and of course, we... We know the same to be true for the mutual fund industry, where I think the numbers are even uh, uh, worse. But 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 I, I think it is an important point, and and having having fair free structures, but also I think for the investors to realize that it's not cheap to run, uh, you know, a, a good hedge fund business, and certainly not in an environment where regulation seems to go up every single day. You open the paper, so um, yes. you know it's a balance, uh, and and at right. the end of the day. Um, the investors need to look at what is the net return we're getting. And uh, if they're unhappy, they need to find other ways to uh, deploy their capital. But I think I appreciate you bringing up that point. Now, before we finish our conversation, um, could you share with us where the listeners can best reach out to you and learn more about Whitmore Capital? Absolutely. So um, my, my email is mark at whitmorecapital.com. 
WhitmoreCapitalManagement.com, excuse me, and our website is uh, www.WhitmoreCapitalManagement.com, and uh, the thought leadership pieces I've done and uh, some other materials there and quarterly reports and things like that, which I try to address not just narrow currency issues, but some other broader investing issues as well are all contained on our letters and uh, articles page. And uh, thank you very much, Mark, for that. And and, and do feel free to uh, uh, send them to me and I'll be happy to upload them to the show notes page on the toptradersonplug.com website so that you can get as much uh, information about uh, Mark and his efforts uh, on that site as well. And and I guess that just leaves me to uh, to really say thank you. Thank you for spending uh, a, a, a two and a half hours with with me uh, on a Saturday away from your away from your family and and sharing a a, a very interesting uh, perspective, a very interesting journey um, that I think uh, a lot of people will resonate with. The, so uh, so thanks very much, Mark. I appreciate that. Well, thank you, Niels. It was a real pleasure, and uh, and I commend you for having started this endeavor, and especially on behalf of small emerging managers like myself, it's it's great to have a, a forum and a resource like this that uh, we can go to and, and utilize. So I, I really commend you on the great work you're doing. Thank you very much, and I hope we can connect at a later day and see uh, see how things are, are panning out for, for, for you, uh, and maybe even one day uh, meet up in person. That'd be great. Well, you have an open invite to Seattle anytime you'd like. Fantastic. So. Thanks so much, Mark, and uh, and take care. Great. You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.